growing up in Michigan, I had no real sense of the place, of what it meant to be from Michigan rather than, say, North Carolina or Nicaragua. I moved to central Florida at the age of 19, and only then did I gain an appreciation for what Michigan was like. Likewise, I never felt like an American so much as when I left the country and spent time somewhere else. They say that the grass is greener on the other side, and sometimes it must be. But having crossed to yonder meadow, how soon the pangs of nostalgia reveal themselves. They also talk about the good old days, pondered from the distance of years and reappraised in hindsight. We gain a sense of the past that did not exist when it was the present. And similarly, we pine for a future when we've completed our degree, we own our own home, we've attained that long-sought career, retirement, or whatever it is. Maybe we just want to feel secure. The good old days are good indeed now that we know the Cold War would one day end without the mutually assured destruction we dreaded. In any case, it seems to me that we can't appreciate, can't even really know what we have or who we are because we don't have anything against which to contrast it. Likewise, I suggest that the conscious point of view cannot perceive itself. I can see you, but I can't see myself. Someday in my old age, perhaps I'll reflect knowingly upon who I used to be. I have previously claimed that human consciousness presents as a unified and coherent composition of contents. The idea of coherence of visual experience will be explored in this podcast, and I will suggest that my theoretical framework, the Temporally Integrated Causality Landscape, TICL, explains the coherence of conscious experiences. Consider the Necker Cube. This is a simple, two-dimensional line drawing of a cube, just as you might draw one yourself. The cube can be interpreted in either of two ways, either with one plane appearing to be the front, or with another plane coming forward in your perception. On the Necker Cube, Christoph Koch writes in The Quest for Consciousness, quote, The physical stimulus, the line drawing, doesn't change, yet conscious perception flips back and forth between these two interpretations in what is a paradigmatic example of a bistable percept. You never see the cube suspended in a position halfway between the inside and outside configurations, nor do you see an amalgamation of the two. Your mind can't simultaneously visualize both shapes. Instead, each configuration vies for perceptual dominance. This is but one manifestation of a general phenomenon that in the presence of ambiguity, the mind doesn't supply multiple solutions, but prefers a simple a single interpretation that may change with time. This aspect of experience is sometimes referred to as the unity of consciousness." Unquote. The Necker cube demonstrates the apparent coherence and unification of experience, because what is being presented to the eyes, the twelve lines that make up the drawing, doesn't change at all. But a three-dimensional shape appears in consciousness in one or the other of two possible conformations. In the real world, we nearly always have a clear perspective on objects that we see in the environment. Clues in the lighting and shade, for example, provide us with a single stable percept corresponding to an object. With the Necker cube, or any other bistable visual illusion, we see one thing now and something different a moment later, even as the stimulus presented to the retinas is held constant. This suggests that human consciousness is not necessarily reliable with regard to the material world. But as I have pointed out before, we do not see objects in the material world, only the representations that appear as contents in the mind. In the case of visual images, these are highly processed by the time their trace appears to us. 
Equally fascinating is the phenomenon of binocular rivalry. Randolph Blake and Nikos Logothetis describe this in Nature Review's Neuroscience, writing, quote, In recent years, neuroscientists have become fascinated with one particularly striking form of bi-stability, binocular rivalry, produced by presenting dissimilar images to corresponding regions of the two eyes. Rather than cooperatively melding into a single coherent view, the two images compete for perceptual dominance. One image can dominate conscious awareness for several seconds at a time, only to be supplanted in consciousness by the previously suppressed rival image. Rivalry was first mentioned by Porta in the 16th century and was more carefully described in the 18th century by de Tour, who commented on both color and form rivalry. However, credit for the first systematic study of rivalry goes to Sir Charles Wheatstone, who documented the conditions that elicit rivalry using his newly invented mirror stereoscope. In the years shortly after Wheatstone's seminal publication, binocular rivalry captured the attention of some of the leading scientific minds of the 19th and 20th centuries, and questions concerning the nature of rivalry have generated lively debate ever since. Unquote. Binocular rivalry, like the Necker cube, demonstrates that the composition that makes up our consciousness must be coherent, which implies that the composition cannot contradict itself. There is a logic to this. If human consciousness evolved, at least in part, to provide a useful map of the immediate environment, available opportunities and threats in the context of adaptive goals, coexisting contradictions in perception could do more harm than good with regard to behavior. It is plausible that contradictions would occur all the time in consciousness because there is such an onslaught of sensory input in the form of action potentials. If it weren't for specific cortical processing between the distal and proximate sensory data, what I mean to say is that if visual information entering the retina were essentially fed directly into the integrated thalamocortical system, we might experience an ever-shifting, confused clusterfuck of a visual scene. Think about a video game with a lot of glitches. A wall shifts or disappears. An object disappears through the wall. The character falls halfway through an area of floor. Or an object flickers in and out of view. At any given instant of visual sensory input, such little inconsistencies may be occurring in the data stream, but by filtering out the noise, processing the data in to increase contrast and resolution, the final product that appears in consciousness is made concrete and decisive. For better or worse, the coherent illusion is the more adaptive one. In Color for Philosophers, C.L. Hardin says, quote, any gray can be driven toward black by increasing the lightness of the area that immediately surrounds it, and the same gray can be driven toward white by decreasing the lightness of its surround. Unquote. In another section, Hardin writes, quote, In perceiving surface colors, the spectrum of the light that reaches the eye is a product of the spectrum of the illuminant and the selectivity, normally reflectivity, of the surface. When either of these factors changes, the composition of the light that reaches the eye is also likely to change. This might be expected to result in constant shifts of the perceived surface color with the constant changes in the character of the illuminant, which occur as one passes from sunlight to shadow to artificial lights of various sorts. In fact, the perceived colors of surfaces show a remarkable, though by no means perfect, constancy over a wide range of illuminance changes." Unquote. These and many other features of visual experience show that data from the retinas are highly and usefully processed for conscious consumption. As I described, 
Binocular rivalry experiments with two different images being projected to the eyes show that only one image is consciously perceived at any given time. Evidence implicates that few neurons in the primary visual cortex V1 and few in V2 have firing rates that correlate with what we perceive. Rather, those neurons largely respond to the signal as it comes in. By contrast, many neurons in visual areas V4 and MT correlate with what we actually perceive, and further along the visual processing pathway, in the inferior temporal cortex and the superior temporal sulcus, the vast majority of neurons fire in correlation with what we actually perceive in consciousness. On this topic, Koch writes, quote, To hammer home the point that neurons in and around the inferotemporal cortex may be members of the coalition sufficient for conscious visual experiences, consider the flash suppression illusion. Discovered by Jeremy Wolfe as part of his PhD research at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, flash suppression exploits binocular suppression, with the percept more easily controlled than in free-running rivalry. Suppose you are looking with one eye at an image. After a while, a different picture is flashed into your other eye. If the two images fall onto corresponding parts of the two retinae, you will see the newly flashed picture, but not the old one, even though it is still there, right in front of you. The second image, due to its novelty, is more salient than the older one and eliminates the older picture from sight." Unquote. According to the TICL framework, human consciousness is composed of meaningful contents that exist from the point of view of a single large integrated system in the thalamocortex. Subsystems occurring within the large system are integrated across their neuronal elements to a higher degree over a shorter time than the elements that make up the whole system. These subsystems give rise to the contents of consciousness, which appear in the conscious composition as soon as they form and remain for as long as they persist in having a higher degree of temporally integrated causality than the greater system. This means that the level of temporally integrated causality across the greater system sets a threshold for conscious perception. This podcast has focused on visual perception because so much research has been carried out in the visual system. With regard to the visual component of the human experiential landscape, the Necker cube and binocular rivalry suggest that the organization of the cortex prohibits the coexistence of two objects in the same space and time. The landscape is coherent with regard to spatial representation. I hypothesize that this occurs because two subsystems cannot both occupy a common spatially mapped network. One of the two will always outcompete the other, such that only that subsystem will exist to occupy that area of the network. Whichever subsystem achieves this will produce visual content that is meaningful from the point of view of the system. The other will be relegated to background noise. I do not suggest that this is the way consciousness must work, but rather that this is the way that natural selection has sculpted the human thalamocortical system. Why doesn't the subsystem responsible for one image perception in a binocular rivalry situation remain dominant? Perhaps what Bernard Bars refers to as perceptual redundancy effects are the answer, at least in part. He defines redundancy as the lack of information, a perfect match between input and expectation. In his book, A Cognitive Theory of Consciousness, Bars writes, quote, redundancy effects for the different senses are quite clear in hearing, olfaction, taste, and touch. In all these sense modalities, a repeated lasting stimulus fades rapidly from consciousness. In the case of hearing, Miller was able to show a rapid decrement in the experienced intensity of even a single burst of white noise after several hundred milliseconds. 
In olfaction, we can observe every day how we lose track of an odor that may have been quite noticeable when we first encountered it." Unquote. With regard to visual redundancy, he writes, quote, One might object that vision seems different. Consciousness of visual stimuli does not seem to fade with repetitive stimulation, even when we stare fixedly at an object. But this argument neglects the existence of eye movements. Our eyes are in continual jumpy motion. As long as the eye keeps scanning a differentiated visual field, new information will enter the retina." Unquote. So perhaps the subsystem is unable to compete for long with the other would-be subsystem because of a redundancy effect. And what about flash suppression? Why does the new image immediately outcompete the old? Koch tells us that the new image, presented to the opposite eye as the original, is novel and more salient. This implies that the new subsystem has a higher degree of temporally integrated causality than the old, takes its place in the occupancy of the spatially mapped network, and the new conscious content emerges. A final point on coherence in visual perception is provided by Stanislas Dehaene in his book Consciousness in the Brain. It concerns the impact of attention on binocular rivalry. Dehaene writes, quote, When we perceive two competing images, our subjective impression is that we are passively submitted to these ceaseless alternations. This impression is false, however. Attention does play an important role in cortical competition process. First of all, if we try hard to attend to one of these two images, for instance the face rather than the house, its perception lasts a little bit longer. That effect, though, is weak. The fight between the two images starts at stages that are not in our control. But most important, the very existence of a single winner depends on our giving it our attention. For a long time, trying to study rivalry without attention seemed a self-defeating strategy, like asking what sound a falling tree makes when no one is around to hear it, or how we feel at the precise moment when we fall asleep." Unquote. But Dehaene goes on to describe an experiment by Peng Zhang at the University of Minnesota wherein the investigators used a technique called frequency tagging so that they did not have to ask the viewing subject whether or not the images were alternating. Using frequency tagging, they could determine by EEG that during binocular rivalry, one oscillation would be strong and the other would be weak, and the two signals would alternate along with the perceived change in Kant's image. Zhang and his colleagues showed that when the viewer ceases to pay attention, the two frequency tags co-occur rather than switching back and forth. Dehaene concludes that inattention prevents rivalry. I have previously suggested that attention might serve to amplify specific neuronal activities in order to create or sustain a subsystem. Perhaps in its absence, both subsystems cease to be and their contents thus disappear. Or maybe the two subsystems manage to coexist as long as we do not attend to them. They might then be incoherent until we inject them into the amplifier of attention, which hastily results in one becoming dominant and driving the other into the background. In sum, visual perception gives evidence that human consciousness is coherent. How often in dreams do our experiences seem anything but? Someone will be telling you about a dream they had and say something to the effect of, the woman was my mother, but she wasn't, you know? Or, I was at my childhood home, but it was different. It was also this place that I once saw in a movie. Whatever the case, maybe dreams are not obliged to have the coherence of waking experiences. If attention really does have a role to play in coherence, and attention is an output function, as I have suggested, it is likely disabled, just as motor outputs from the cortex are during REM sleep. When we cease to pay attention, 
Perhaps the mind comes unmoored and the world as we know it becomes incomprehensible. Perhaps the world is incomprehensible, but the evolved architecture of the cerebral cortex conspires against us in constructing the illusion that it isn't. Thank you.